Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. And welcome into AOA, Agriculture of America. Thank you for joining us here on the program today. We have another exciting show lined up for you. Coffee cup is full. We're ready to talk about what is happening in agriculture and issues impacting rural America. Coming up here in segment two today, we're going to recap the latest cattle on feed report and get a uh, closer look at what is moving in the livestock industry here early in 2024. Dennis Smith with Archer Financial Services is going to join us for a conversation. Coming up after the bottom of the hour in segment three, we're going to stay on the livestock industry. We're going to talk cattle with Patrick Robinette from the U.S. Cattlemen's Association. USDA has released their uh, grading pilot program details here last late last week, and a lot of groups are applauding that news, including the U.S. Cattlemen's Association. So we're going to have a, a conversation and learn more about that with Patrick Robinette coming up here in segment three today. And in segment four today, I had a conversation last week with the president and CEO of CHS, Jay Deberton, talking about their quarter one fiscal year earnings for 2024 and also the potential partnership, the exploratory process between CHS and Growmark that, two, that the two companies are entering into. We're going to talk about that and listen back to uh, most of that interview coming up here at the end of the show today. So again, thank you for joining us here on AOA. Kicking things off, Farm Futures has just released their 2024 acreage estimates. Here to give us the details on that and talk about it, we welcome in Jacqueline Holland with Farm Futures to AOA. And Jacqueline, thanks for joining us here on the program today. How are you? Doing great, Jesse. Thank you for having me this morning. Well, let's dive in and look at these numbers. And again, these acreage estimates just getting released uh, on Tuesday morning. And really, uh, acreage, it, it looked like a lot of marginal changes and maybe some changes that were a little less than some folks would maybe expect here, considering how the markets have been acting. Could you give us some of the headline numbers to start? Yes, absolutely, Jesse. So for corn acres, our farmers indicated they are going to plant 92.8 million acres this spring. That is about a 2% drop from last year's plantings. Soybean acres came in at 84 or 85.9 million acres. That'll be a 1.6 increase, a 1.6% increase from last year. Even though USDA forecasted lower winter wheat sowings in their January report, our farmers indicated they planted 1.5% more winter wheat acres this past fall, coming in at 37.3 million acres. Spring wheat acres are expected to take a hit down to 9.1 million acres as farmers, especially up in the northern plains, weigh growing renewable diesel production against uh, some hard red spring planting prospects. Durham wheat acres are expected to be unchanged at 1.7 million acres. That'll keep total wheat acres for 2024 at about 48.0 million acres, which mm -hmm. is about a 3% drop from last year. Well, Jackie, as I was looking through the numbers as well, it, it looked to me that a lot of the traditional rotations 
were going to stay in the heart of the corn belt is what it looked like you guys found, but you kind of indicated it there. Some of the acres uh, on the outside of the corn belt, so to speak, the Northern Plains, other areas, it sounds like that could be where we see some of these marginal shifts. Right. So coming into this, this data set over the past couple of weeks, uh, the markets have been favoring more soybean acres next year. Um, but our survey data showed that, you know, farmers are actually pretty content to keep their rotations in check in the corn in the corn belt. Um, I think there is a really good case to be made for lower fertilizer prices and readily available fertilizer supplies that favored uh, favored planning for corn acres last fall. Um, so we're going to see fewer as a result, we're going to see fewer corn acres outside of the key corn belt area, but a lot more of those acres are going to come into soybeans. And I guess when I say a lot more, it's more of a marginal shift this year. Well, I know too, uh, you guys just had your farm futures business conference, uh, here just a week or so ago in Iowa city, Coralville, Iowa. What did you hear from a lot of the producers in attendance? Did a lot of the producers who attended, did uh, a lot of this data you guys found, was that reflected in what some folks were were saying and talking about there on the ground during the uh, the business conference? Not directly, but there was a lot of concern about growing conditions and harvest prospects in Brazil and Argentina. Okay. And... Though we derived through our survey data that the South American production is likely the the most significant driver of some of these smaller acreage shifts, um, instead mm-hmm. of you know seeing. I think the markets were very much expecting to see more soybean acres than corn this year, and there's still a lot of uncertainty about how U.S. crops are going to be able to compete with South American crops in the coming months. And to that end, you know, both the farmer comments we heard last week and our survey data reflected that farmers aren't willing to pull the trigger yet on many significant acreage changes within the primary Corn Belt states. And I wonder too, and I'm not sure if you guys covered this in the survey, but you know, obviously when you think about if there was fall fertilizer application, you know, that could already, that could have a big effect of course on what is put into the ground this spring, but between now and spring planting, you know, there, there could be some shifts, but again, it sounds like a lot of this is going to stay with that pretty uh, traditional rotation, isn't it, Jackie? Yes, I think the biggest opportunity we'll see for major acre movement will probably be in North Dakota in mm-hmm. the spring wheat acres up there. I think farmers are waiting to see how moisture plays out for the rest of the winter. And, you know, if they get good moisture, I anticipate they are going to be more eager to plant spring wheat. Um, But at any rate, soybeans are still a very plausible fallback option for them if they don't get that moisture. Yeah, very, very true. And I I believe I saw the number on that spring wheat acres you mentioned. Was it down 19% year over year? That little bit of an eye-popping number to me there, Jackie, if that comes to fruition. 
Yes, yes. I'm looking back through my notes. I believe it's going to be the smallest spring wheat uh, spring wheat acreage uh, planted since um, I think long, the 1970s. Okay, I was going to say a long time by the sound of it. Yeah, the 1970s. I had to dig really far back for that data. <laughs> <laughs> well, nonetheless, I know folks can view all of the data, farmfutures.com. It is posted there right now, and we have been talking with Jacqueline Holland, Gray Market Analyst with Farm Futures and Farm Progress here today on AOA. And Jackie, thanks for joining us on the show. Appreciate the time. Thanks for having me, Jesse. All right, coming up next, we're going to recap the Catalog Feed Report, talk livestock with Dennis Smith from Archer Financial Services here on AOA. Every Tuesday, we'll be sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS. Join us and learn how CHS creates the vital connections that empower agriculture, helping farmers and ranchers like you succeed. We'll hear from different voices from throughout the cooperative system, sharing stories about how good things happen when people work together. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Heading to NCBA's Cattle Convention on Friday, February 2nd. Stop by USMEF booth 1807 with me, Jesse Allen. We'll be broadcasting AOA Live with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association and the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Stop by from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern to learn how these organizations work together to competitively position American product as the sustainable, high-quality, premier product of choice. And don't forget to join NCGA on Thursday at 2.30 for their Learning Lounge. We'll see you in Orlando. Every day, our brave military men and women, along with their families, make tremendous sacrifices for our freedom. Patriotic Hearts, a nonprofit organization, is dedicated to supporting these heroes and their families in their times of need. By donating your unwanted car to Patriotic Hearts, you'll be supporting job transition and job fair programs, veteran entrepreneurship, counseling, and retreats for combat veterans and their spouses. Call 800-560-3870 you'll receive a tax deduction and we'll arrange a free pickup at your convenience. Imagine the difference you can make in the lives of those who have given so much for our country. Your car donation will directly impact military families, veterans, providing them with the support they desperately need. Call 800-560-3870. You can become a part of something bigger. Join us in our mission to uplift and honor our military community. Call 800-560-3870 to donate your unwanted card. My name is Ariel. When I arrived in the U.S. at 19, I struggled to find job opportunities without my high school diploma. My entire life changed when I took a chance and got my high school diploma at age 22. Everything I have, my education, my career, my marriage, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and my teachers. They were with me every step of the way, helping with my English and math, making sure I pushed through all the challenges. Ariel, your success proves that what I'm doing as a teacher has real meaning. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. Education was the key that unlocked all my opportunities. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council.
Informing America's farmers and ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA as we turn our attention now to what is happening in the livestock industry and in the livestock trade. We want to look at the Catalan feed report that came out here this past Friday. Looked like most of these numbers as expected. We're going to break that down and have a conversation right now with Dennis Smith from Archer Financial Services. Dennis, great to have you back on AOA with us, and uh, Happy New Year to you. We haven't talked since the new year began. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, thank you, Jesse. I appreciate you having me on. Well, as I mentioned, it looked like uh, these cattle on feed numbers for January, everything pretty much as expected, fairly neutral. You know, I've gotten used to uh, getting a surprise number or two here or there, Dennis, the last couple catalog feed reports, but this one pretty much looked in line with uh, what we thought ahead of the report. Well, it did, but I like the numbers. Now, the marketing number in particular at 99%, there was one less weekday this year versus last year. So really, uh, if you want to compare day by day, that's really like a marketing number at 104%. And Jesse, this is the first bullish marketing number we've seen in months going clear back to maybe last June, maybe even last May. Uh, so that's a very constructive development as far as the marketing number. Placements were lower. As you indicated, that was fully expected. But I think placements will be sharply lower in January, and that's something the market has to think about. Yeah, it is. Uh, I've been hearing a lot of talk about a lot of heifers uh, out there in the feed yard uh, here. We've been seeing a lot of that in recent months. Is is that something you're hearing as well that we could start to see reflected in, in these future reports, Dennis? Yeah, most definitely. That That's what the data shows anyway. Uh, indicates that the, the coal continues as far as uh, the, the reducing uh, the, the, the beef herd over time. Uh, although things are changing moisture-wise, we've got heavy moisture now coming into drought areas of uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, uh, Alabama, uh, Arkansas. Uh, we've also got a vastly improved moisture situation in the Great Plains all the way from Texas north to Montana. Uh, I'm expecting this to really stabilize the beef cow slaughter as we move into the second half of 2024. Let's talk about uh, potential here, uh, margins and, and such for producers. You know, one thing I've been watching um, – Excuse me, Dennis. One thing I've been watching uh, pretty closely here has been uh, the uh, choice and select uh, prices here. Getting uh, getting those prices back up closer to the uh, $300 mark in some cases. Watching futures uh, rebound a little bit. I, I talk to me about what you're seeing here in, in terms of some of this price action and what it could mean for cattle producers. Well, I think it's a very constructive development. Uh, the, the wholesale beef, as you indicated, in my opinion, will be north of $300 by the end of this week. Uh, the cash steer market, that is the dressed cash market, uh, topped last week at 277 So you're talking a 277 dressed market. 
versus a $300 plus choice market. And uh, that tells me that there is margin there for the beef packer. Uh, and uh, they continue to be uh, stubborn and reluctant to pay higher prices, complaining about poor margins. Quite frankly, I just don't see it. And I think the uh, the leverage is moving away from the packer and toward the feedlot. And I am looking for higher prices. I know, too, you know, some of that leverage moving back to the feedlot. I mean, I look at corn. I know a lot of our grain uh, growers aren't necessarily happy with 450 corn or less, but got to think that is beneficial to, uh, to folks out there in feedlot country, Dennis. Uh, yeah, most definitely. The, the corn ending stocks projection at uh, over 2.2 billion bushels is uh, plentiful. Uh, indicates no real uh, tight supply of corn, and uh, we're still historically high as far as the corn price goes. I'm sorry, that's just the fact. And from a livestock potential, we think there is a potential for lower corn prices. We are talking with Dennis Smith from Archer Financial Services here on AOA today. Dennis, uh, let's talk about the hog market a little bit. Uh, hogs, uh, you know, since the last time you and I talked, we've been finding what looks to be a little bit of support. We had uh, quite a few days in a row that we strung together gains on the futures board. And, you know, I'm looking at Feb Hogs sitting uh, just right around that $70, $71 mark, April 77. You know, for our hog folks out there, things have been looking a little bit better. What's your take in the hog market right now? My take in the hog futures market is a total confusion right now. I guess I consider the fundamentals not bullish, but yet hog futures doing just the opposite. They're trying to take out resistance and, and pointing towards something completely different than, than what I am seeing or what I uh, comprehend the situation to be. So it's a lot of confusion on my end uh, on the hog market uh, We've backed up hogs. We're looking at a huge kill last week and another huge kill this week. And futures are climbing the wall of worry and they're breaking out to the upside. Are you seeing some of that confusion on the cash side of, of the hog market right now as well, Dennis? Well, I, I'm not sure. I, I think it will continue because that, that's the the that's the trend right now. Uh, again, exactly why I cannot explain ex mm -hmm. what's happening here. Uh, it's not coming from China. I feel confident of that, that the, the situation in China is a total mess as far as over pork production. Uh, pork demand in China is way off, way down. And, uh, and that's due to, uh, to, a, to a horrible economy and a very low consumer confidence. And I'm glad you brought up the China situation because uh, you are correct. It is a mess over there. And, you know, thinking about demand in that Chinese economy, you know, uh, some folks may be asking, well, why isn't China buying our pork? Well, I think, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. Their economy and that demand picture is not that great over there right now. So one has to wonder as we, you know, get into 2024 here, could we maybe pick up some of the slack with domestic demand or look at some of our other trading partners such as Mexico and Latin America, things of that nature? I, I know that on the demand situation, 
there's a, a lot of, uh, I think, a lot more questions than answers right now here in the in the pork side and the beef side too, Dennis. Yeah, well, the one thing that is happening at the moment is bellies are being secured and placed into the freezer, uh, which is actually normal. But that's driving the belly price higher, and that's supporting the pork cutout value. Now, European pork remains very expensive. Uh, European pork exports, and I'm talking about EU pork exports, as a, as a group, that is the largest pork exporter in the world. And their pork exports were down 24% last year as they've culled the herd aggressively and uh, their expensive prices are now not being sought after on the world market. So U.S. pork producers are, are taking advantage of that. We are seeing pork exports improve, uh, you might say, in every country with the exception of China, uh, specifically Latin America. Dennis, uh, we got about a minute or so here. Uh, final thoughts from you for our, our livestock producers, beef and pork. Uh, what do you want to remind folks as they try to manage their margins and manage their risk here early in the year? I'd be real careful about being aggressive from the hedge standpoint in the hog market. Try to give this market a little bit of time, see if this market can't blow up in price and get futures at least above break-evens. I don't see anything above break-even right now. Cattle futures, I'm very bullish, and I think we've got a higher cash steer market, higher wholesale beef prices down the road. Dennis Smith with Archer Financial Services. Dennis, always appreciate the time and the insight. Thank you for joining us on AOA today, and we'll look forward to getting you back on the show again real soon. Thanks so much. Thank you. And great stuff there. Good thoughts of what we are seeing in this livestock industry right now with Dennis Smith from Archer Financial Services. All right, coming up next here on AOA, we're going to stay in the cattle industry. We're going to take a closer look at USDA's announcement late last week of the expansion of their remote grading uh, pilot program, looking at helping out small and mid-sized processors uh, be able to make it more affordable for grading, for choice, select, etc. Patrick Robinett with the U.S. Cattlemen's Association is going to join us coming up here next and give us his thoughts on the welcome news by many folks in the cattle industry. We'll get to that conversation on the way right after this. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Are you heading to NCBA in Orlando? On Thursday, February 1st, stop by Christian Hansen booth 1067 for some exciting live radio. Celebrity host Jesse Allen will be broadcasting AOA live from Christian Hansen booth 1067 from 10 to 11 a.m. Also on Friday at 1130 in the Learning Lounge, Jesse Allen will be hosting Christian Hansen's discussion on how daily feeding of probiotics can improve the digestibility and utilization of the forages cattle are consuming. If you miss an episode of AOA, you can listen back to the show anytime. Just search for Agriculture of America on your podcast platform of choice, and you can hear past episodes of the program on demand. 
Make sure to subscribe to the Market Talk YouTube channel. You can watch our latest interviews with top market analysts in the country, find bonus content, and much more. It's easy. Just go to youtube.com slash at Market Talk Egg and hit the subscribe button. Or you can search for Market Talk Egg on YouTube. You're listening to AOA for the American Egg Network. I'm Richard Risvet with this Market Update. Well, the grain and oilseed markets traded mostly higher overnight, and they're continuing that this morning as value hunters again buy the sector due to its bargain prices, although fundamental support is remaining lacking. Currently, the winter wheats are the leader to the upside, with beans not too far behind. Corn is up just a couple of pennies. Now, wheat inspections rose in the seven days that ended on January 18th. While corn and bean assessments, they declined. Wheat inspections were reported at 314,521 metric tons. That's up from 242,409 tons the week before. But it is behind the 349,000 tons assessed during the same week last year. Examinations of corn for overseas delivery fell to 713,290 tons. That is down 25% from the previous week. Now, since the start of the marketing year on September 1st, the government has inspected 14.7 million metric tons of corn for overseas delivery. That's up from 11.5 million during the same time frame last year. While wheat assessments since the start of the grains marketing year on June 1st are now at 10.7 million tons, that's down from 12.8 million at the same point last year. Now, USDA inspected 983 million bushels of soybeans for export shipment for the marketing year to date through January 18th. That is down 276 million, or 22%, from the previous year's pace. That's as the prime U.S. shipping season is coming to an end as Brazil begins harvest of its new crop. Now, the sluggish U.S. shipment pace is largely due to lingering Brazilian shipments through the fourth quarter of the calendar year, which is our primary shipping season. China imported 5 million metric tons of soybeans from Brazil in December. That's compared to just 3.85 million coming from from the United States. It imported 70 million metric tons of soybeans from Brazil in calendar year 23. That's up 15.5 million on the year, while importing just 26.5 million from the U.S., which is down 3 million from the previous year. That means less than 30% of China's 2023 soybean imports came from the U.S. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. Farming is dangerous. There's dangers all around us. We work around it and we live around it every day. And we just become desensitized to what's around us. We go through safety training and, you know, we try and do these things to make sure accidents don't happen, but you just never know. There are so many farmers that I think take for granted all of the underground utilities that are there. You don't want to hit a gas pipe because that's your life. The other part of it is if you hit certain things, you're liable for it. I mean, we kind to know what's out here, but all at the same time, you, you just always call. Farm Safe 811 starts with you. Whether you're installing drain tile or doing any sort of digging, always call 811 and wait for any underground lines to be marked and have the depth confirmed. That's farming with care. But if a line does get damaged, go somewhere safe and call 911. Always keep safety in the back of your mind. Just stay humble. For more information, go to farmsafe811.org. information America's farmers and ranchers need. AOA. Now, back to Jesse Allen. Well, USDA last week announcing their remote carcass grading pilot program. They are expanding this remote grading program and a lot of folks in the cattle industry are happy and welcoming this news. Joining us to Tell us more about it and have a conversation. He is the U.S. Cattlemen's Association Independent Beef Processing Chairman, Patrick Robinette from North Carolina is with us. Patrick, great to have you on AOA. Hope you're doing well. Yes, sir. Doing well. Thank you for having me. 
Well, Patrick, give us uh, the background here a little bit on this remote grading uh, pilot program from USDA announced here last week. It it really seems like this is going to be a big benefit and make things more cost effective for small and mid-sized producers, isn't it? It is. So, you know, grading has been around since 1960. And the problem is, is that 30 years and through consolidation and, and what have you, what used to be a standard staple at every facility, the USDA created grading to make sure that there's customer confidence and quality of, of meat had eroded away from the small and very small and got to the point last 20, 30 years can't afford it. And so there has been a separation from the cattlemen's abilities to be able to capture the the premium from the quality grade on their own, and which is theoretically has forced the cattle to go to the big four. And if you want to get paid for a premium on, on a grade, you have to go where a grader is going to be, which then you're giving up on margins from the big four. Mm-hmm. In my situation, we've been direct marking our uh, the beef that we've raised for uh, 24 years. And I go visit a restaurant, and the chef says, well, I buy choice ribeye. I legally could not, even though my ribeye would grade choice, I would not be able to sell him choice ribeye because I couldn't put it on label because they didn't have a grader. And, and we had run calculations. Uh, so, you know, graders are assigned to a facilities. You would have to get permission for that grader to be able to lead the facility that they're assigned to. You'd have to pay for their travel. You'd have to pay for their time during travel. Then you'd have to pay for the grading itself. And like in my case, the closest grader to, to where I was at, where I'm at in North Carolina, it would cost about $400 a carcass. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So by the time you would pay to be able to put the premium into the carcass, you would lose the premium to the grader. So a couple of years ago, two years ago, be exact, in a meeting with uh, USDA AMS, and we were talking about another situation and another thing we were working on, and we had gotten resolved. And I brought it up and talked about how there was a, uh, you know, the, there was disservice to the you know, cattlemen, and it was disservice to the small, medium, uh, small, very small plants. And, uh, you know, we are very blessed within USDA AMS, you know, we can sit here and talk about how ridiculously large the USDA is. And, and, you know, we got the bureaucrats in USDA, but there Mm -hmm. is a group within AMS that are producer minded driven. And they listened to me and I presented them, you know, Hey, here's the situation. And I presented it in a, in a, in a fashion because it's always marvels myself the USDA is operating under 200-year-old regulations, but yep. we forget that there's modern technology available. Like mm-hmm. We don't modernize how we run. So these guys and, and, and gals, they, they listened to me. They, they, they went out. They talked amongst themselves. Did a feasibility study last year uh, to see, you know, is, is, am I a one-off or is this really an issue? What is being a disservice to the farmers? And then started... Uh, working on the plan. How can we get grading in and available with these small, very small plants? And so utilizing the technology of our cell phones, taking pictures, able to upload them cloud, we can get them to a grader and then the grader would issue a grade. Well, Patrick, man, this just seems like a no brainer and a win for the producer here. I mean, expand upon that a little bit. 
Yeah, I want to add into this, add in a couple of things. One is, this is not going to be a processor-driven program. Sure. You know, many of these small and very small plants, they just don't want, like, they don't want one more thing to have to do, right? This is going to be a producer. That's why the U.S. Cattlemen's is committed to uh, work with, you know, um, not work on behalf of the USDAMS, but we're promoting the heck out of this thing. It's a producer-driven program. That producer needs to go to their their local plant in a state and federal plant. So, like, if you got, you know, state, you know, states where there's no federal plants available, but they're state-inspected plants, this is available for the state-inspected plants. Go to them and say, hey, I want this available, and make and then you know make they make that decision. If not, move on to another plant. Mm-hmm. So it's the producer driven. Number two is it's not just for the small, very small plants that would have retail. These producers that are out here in America that have diversified their production to be able to direct market their beef. They're now in the marketplace competing against Tyson's and Cargill and JBS because they have the choice and they have the primes and they have the selects. They have that. They just never been able to disclose it. Now they can get on that same grocery store shelf that it is local or it's regional and put that same word that that consumer is looking for. Now, and even to the farmer's markets, look at what's going to happen to the farmer markets, folks. Yeah. To be able to say, hey, you don't have to go to the grocery store to get choice beef. I have choice beef. So, like, this is the drive there. The third group that I've identified this is going to help is the is the C-stock producers, Many times, seed stock producers, you know, to sell their their heifers or you know breeding cows or breeding bulls, you know, and part of the EPA EPD collection is meat quality, so they'd have to rely on whoever bought their their seed stock to be able to follow their their animals all the way through and give them back that information. They're able to do a diversification on their on their production to sell some beef while selling seed stock. But then they can take while they're selling, you know, take it to their pro- local processor. Hey, I want this, you know, graded. Mm-hmm. Then in real time, they can get that data back. And then the, there's a fourth group, and I think this is going to be tremendous: is the feedlot folks. Sure. I don't know me personally. I don't know of any feedlot that don't have some sort of a meat locker beef program for friends, family, and employees. They're pulling cattle out of their pens, and they're already getting them slaughtered and processed anyways. Nobody says you have to get a grade, and that grade has to go in marketplace. You can give the grade away. Yeah, right. makes sense. Give the grade beef away. I believe when we're looking at the feedlot producers, we're feeding the cattle exactly the same today as we have in the last 20 years to a point. You know, there's some improvement in nutritional, you know, stuff. But, but still, we're, just, we're feeding for a grade, a prime. And we're just feeding, feeding, feeding until we think it's prime. And then we release the, the, the examples out. That feedlot producer now can draw out a representative sample of his pen, take it to that locker, get that grade, and then he would have a better idea of what that pen would grade out ahead. And I believe we're going to back up feed our mm-hmm. feeding costs 10, 15%. So I think yeah. this is a producer driven program. Yeah, producer-driven program, and I, I will add with this too. You know, you mentioned this earlier, uh, using modern technology, you know, to benefit our industry. And I think, you know, Patrick, I think this pilot program just one piece of a, a broader picture here as we try to find some various reforms in the industry. And I know there's been a lot of talk right. and a lot of different things being brought to the table here, but 
you know, updating some of those outdated pieces of right. policy, et cetera. It, it's that it's time to do that in 2024, isn't it? Yeah. And so what was funny is, is that, you know, there's a technology where, you know, camera grading has been in the plants, but USDA MS said, well, yeah, you can use camera grading, but you have to have a grader physically on site. Now, what was funny was Uruguay, Uruguay, Brazil, Argentina, and Australia allow camera grading in their plants. And we're like, well, how is this technology accepted down there? Like, we're, we're really hurting our own industry that we're here to protect and promote. Mm-hmm. And then there was this whole argument, or not argument, arguments is the wrong word, a discussion. Well, yeah, but you got to have somebody there to calibrate. And I brought up, well, FSIS is there, and then it gets into this jurisdictional stuff. So, like, it was so great to work with this team of, of people within a- AMS to be able to come up with a solution. You know, hey, we'll have it. You know, we can upload it. We figured out how to be able to read from the, uh, you know, off of a picture. We'll get it to a grader. Then they don't have to worry about changing up FSIS and stuff. So anyhow, it was great to see producer-minded employees of USDA really buckle down and, like, really come up with a solution you know, we in the industry, you know, sometimes it frustrates me. We go to Congress and we want to change laws and change regulations. And that takes so many daggone years to get done. And, and hopefully, maybe, possibly one time in your lifetime, you get that win. It was, let's look at the regulations in place, make the modification to keep it the spirit of the regulation, because then it's just a change of operational procedure within the USDA. Nothing has changed in the regulation itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot of exciting things and very, very good news for small and mid-sized operators for sure. And uh, really appreciate the conversation, Patrick. Before we let you go real quick, uh, before we run out of time, anything else you'd want to add uh, about this news from USDA? Just that, you know, it is active. It's running right now. On the 25th is a webinar. I welcome all producers to jump up there, just sit in on the webinar, get educated in how this all works, and then make this, it's a producer-driven program. Like, get out there and let's reward the USDA in making this change. Let's not have another program that sits on the wayside. Let's utilize it. And then dry, that'll drive the cattle away from the big four, give more margins for the local cattlemen. And really, it, it does change our life. And so we just we thank the USDA for the hard work. And so, but no, I welcome, you know, welcome and challenge the producers to let's make this thing happen. With that, Patrick Robinette from the U.S. Cattlemen's Association. Patrick, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. And we'll be back with more here on AOA right after this. A promise is potent, born of intention, fueled by commitment. It's seeing things through, always showing up. And we know a thing or two about promises here at Susan G. Komen. Over 40 years ago, we locked arms with you toward one vision, a world without breast cancer. By investing in life-saving research and standing up for patient rights, we are shifting the system so all people everywhere get the care they deserve. Because if you've just been diagnosed and don't know where to turn, we've got you. If you can't afford the treatment you need, 
we've got you. And if you are driven to raise money to honor the best friend you've just lost, we have a place for you here because of you. We're supporting those who need help today while tirelessly searching for tomorrow's cures. Ending breast cancer needs all of us. Visit Komen.org and be a part of the Susan G. Komen community today. Everyone has a community to lean on. A neighborhood, school, kids' teams, where you worship, work, work out, or any other place or group where you choose to belong. Communities can provide support when you need it, and even when you don't know you do. Like when it comes to preventing underage drinking and other substance use. You've talked with your kids and shared clear expectations, but you're not with them every minute. Your community members, friends and relatives, teachers and coaches, faith leaders, and other important adults in your kids' lives can be your eyes, ears, and a supportive influence when you're not around, reinforcing your messages with your kids and alerting you to warning signs of underage drinking or other substance use. So talk with your kids about these issues and involve the members of your community to help keep your kids safe. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit talktheyhearyou.samhsa.gov. Are you heading to NCBA in Orlando? On Thursday, February 1st, stop by Christian Hansen booth 1067 for some exciting live radio. Celebrity host Jesse Allen will be broadcasting AOA Live from Christian Hansen booth 1067 from 10 to 11 a.m. Also on Friday at 1130 in the Learning Lounge, Jesse Allen will be hosting Christian Hansen's discussion on how daily feeding of probiotics can improve the digestibility and utilization of the forages cattle are consuming. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, Stefan Florescu, a wheat trading expert with CHS, will provide a 2024 wheat demand outlook. Stefan, U.S. wheat exports are at the lowest point since the early 1970s. Do you expect international sales to pick up this year? Yes, I do. But it's easy to say this after the lowest export number in 50 years. International sales are a function between other factors of supply availability and price competitiveness. Three years ago, we had low production in Northern Plains and in the last two years, a crop failure in Southern Plains. As a result of this dramatic crop in production, U.S. wheat priced itself uncompetitively on international markets. Now, it is still early to say, but with normalized crop conditions of winter wheat and with benign weather for spring plantings and crop development later in the year, we could see a larger exportable surplus for next year and a spike in international sales. What's your outlook for U.S. wheat demand? Domestic demand for U.S. wheat is very constant, particularly for milling wheat, and remains steady internationally as well. It benefits from the fact that the U.S. wheat quality is considered good and highly valued by customers across the globe. U.S. wheat has to fight to recover market share lost in some traditional destinations, such as Central America, West Africa, or even Asia, where other origins gain access lately after a few years of limited and less competitive U.S. supply. I believe consumers will be happy to receive offers from the U.S. again, but marketers will have to make a strong effort to compete with Black Sea wheat into Central America, Baltic States wheat into West Africa, or even Canadian wheat into Asia. We've been talking with Stefan Florescu, a wheat trading expert with CHS here on Around the Table. Stefan, thanks for joining us today. Jesse, happy to be here with you today. And thank you for joining us Around the Table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. 
National FFA Week is February 17th through the 24th, a week set aside for FFA students across the country to share how FFA impacts members every day. I'm National FFA Secretary Grant Norfleet from Missouri. What better way to show your support of FFA than to get involved in FFA Week? Whether it's in person, on the phone, or via social media, be sure to share your FFA stories during hashtag FFA Week, February 17th through the 24th. Informing America's Farmers and Ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA. Well, recently, uh, here just last week, in fact, I had a conversation with Jay Debertson, the president and CEO of CHS, going over their quarter one earnings numbers for fiscal year 2024. Let's listen into that interview, learn more about the uh, good quarter that the cooperative had. And we also hear comments from Jay Debertson about CHS at Growmark entering into an exploratory period to see how the two cooperatives could work together. Here is that interview. Uh, give us a rundown of some of the, uh, the highlight numbers that we saw here to start, Jay. Sure. We had a really strong quarter, uh, Jesse. Just really pleased with our, our results. We had revenues of $11.4 billion for just the quarter. It's our first quarter uh, for, uh, for, for, for CHS. Um, that resulted in earnings of about $522.9 million. Now that's down from the same first quarter a, a year ago, but let me just put a little context behind that. A year ago, uh, we made 780, just about $783 million. Uh, and that was a record that the company has never seen before uh, mm -hmm. for, a, for a first quarter. This year, we made 520, uh, just about $523 million. That actually is our second best quarter ever, uh, only behind last year's uh, quarter. So it, that's where I say a very, very strong quarter uh, for, for, for the company. And you know, Jesse, as, as as you and I have talked about before, in the agricultural sector, our margins, our prices fluctuate each and every year, uh, and uh, and we're cognizant of that, and uh, and we expect that, and we build the company for that, and um, and so that's what we're gonna, you know, that's likely what we're gonna see. It's just margins will be different this year, and last year they were different than the year before, and 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 that's 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 who we are. But a really really strong. Uh, we saw really good results all the way across the platforms of CHS. Mm -hmm. uh, our energy, our egg, our nitrogen production, uh, our corporate and other all had nice results uh, for the quarter. Well, Jay, and I, you and I have talked about this before as well. I, I think with strong results like that, kind of the, the diversified segments of CHS. Uh, I mean, talk about that a little bit, but you, you kind of alluded to it there. But obviously, a lot of different segments that the company, the cooperative could pull from here. Uh, and, and just talk about some of that a little bit for us. Yeah, absolutely. That is one of the advantages of CHS and <clears throat> our diversification across these industries. Our energy segment had earnings of about $267 million. Again, that was down a bit from last year, but last year we just had this incredibly large um, refining margins and, 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 and crude uh, advantages for the crudes that we buy to, at our refineries. In our egg segment, we had earnings this year of about $169.7 million. And that story, Jesse, has been uh, in our egg segment is, is similar to what you and I have talked about in the past. We had really good results in our processing side, particularly our soybean processing that's being driven a lot by renewable diesel and the things that you and I have spoken about in the past. 
But you know, our grain segment, which is largely um, reflects kind of exports off the U.S., uh, you know, the export market for the United States in in ag commodities uh, has been a bit challenged these last couple of quarters. Uh, and and we've talked about the reasons for that and how the U.S. market is kind of sitting a little bit high in the market uh, globally, uh, and that happens from time to time. Crop conditions around the world are uneven, and you know, Brazil had a big crop that came off and. And that's just a you know that's that's the business that we're in, but we're feeling that in our grain segment as you know total industry exports are are just relatively light uh, coming off uh, the U.S. So we feel that in our in our grain uh, export business and our agronomy side, we had a really really strong fall. Um, bottom line, but behind all that. Um, Jesse is is just as as you say. We have always parts of our company that seem to you know have wind at their back, and parts of our company where it's you know it's it's much a bit of more of a struggle, and that's that that's who we are, and that's um, that's embedded in in our results. Well, Jay, of course, you know we're well into the fiscal year, but uh, technically the calendar year just started. So, your thoughts for what lies ahead? Uh, for CHS, uh, as we look across agriculture and look across the company, either good or, or or bad things that could be wins or challenges here in the year ahead. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll still stay with the theme that um, that we've talked about in the past, Jesse. I, you know, I, I look at the outlook for agriculture as good. Uh, I think, you know, commodity uh, uh, prices are, while they're not at the high levels that we've seen in the past, n- nor are input costs at the high levels that we've seen in the past. They've kind of re- re- reset a bet. Global demands for protein, strong. The U.S. farmers' ability to compete around the world, strong. Uh, more options coming at farmers, in the, in particular in the case of uh, processing uh, that is being driven by the things we've talked about that I just think are more options for farmers. And, uh, and we all know that farmers like options. But it won't be long and we'll be starting to think about the things that we always do. What's moisture? How's the spring look like it's gonna unfold? But I, I, I sit here today saying, I think the outlook is uh, remains optimistic and uh, and remains good. We're, we're sure approaching it that way. A lot of agronomies uh, put down this last fall, which is gonna take some pressure off trying to get it done this spring. And that's that usually helps things. And uh, and, and so I'll, I'll, I'll stand here at the doorstep of the new calendar year and say, I, I'm, I'll remain optimistic for agriculture. Well, another piece of news that we uh, should discuss as well here before we wrap it up, Jay, uh, CHS and Growmark have entered into an exploratory process. I, I know there's a longstanding relationship here between the two cooperatives. Uh, can you give us a few more details uh, of what exactly we're, we're looking at here with CHS and Growmark working together? We've had relationships and have relationships between the two companies. We have events to ventures together. And the boards of directors uh, together said, let's see if we should or could do something even larger together. And uh, and we don't know what that would mean or how, how big that could be. And that's why we're calling of exploring it together. Uh, we aren't in any way announcing any answer to that question. We are saying we're going to look together between the two companies um, that, that have ventures together. And, and there could be, there's, could there be something bigger that's good for the shareholders of CHS and good for the shareholders of Growmark to position the companies really 
you know, for an increasingly competitive world and uh, and at a time when you have two strong companies in the case of Growmark and CHS. And once again, a conversation I had last week with Jay Debertson, president and CEO of CHS. Well, we're out of time here today on AOA, Agriculture of America. Coming up tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with South Dakota Senator John Thune, get an update on the farm bill and much more. Have a great rest of your day. I'm Jesse Allen. Thanks for listening to AOA. Are you heading to NCBA in Orlando? On Thursday, February 1st, stop by Christian Hansen booth 1067 for some exciting live radio. Celebrity host Jesse Allen will be broadcasting AOA Live from Christian Hansen booth 1067 from 10 to 11 a.m. Also on Friday at 1130 in the Learning Lounge, Jesse Allen will be hosting Christian Hansen's discussion on how daily feeding of probiotics can improve the digestibility and utilization of the forages cattle are consuming. Heading to NCBA's Cattle Convention on Friday, February 2nd. Stop by USMEF booth 1807 with me, Jesse Allen. We'll be broadcasting AOA Live with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association and the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Stop by from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern to learn how these organizations work together to competitively position American product as the sustainable, high-quality, premier product of choice. And don't forget to join NCGA on Thursday at 2.30 for their Learning Lounge. We'll see you in Orlando. Hey, wouldn't it be great if life came with a remote control? You know, you could hit pause when you needed to, or hit rewind. Like that time you knocked down that wasp's nest. Uh Uh-oh. Or that time you forgot to roll up your windows in the car wash. Fantastic. Yeah, a remote control would have come in handy then. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome. But pre-diabetes does. With early diagnosis and a few healthy changes like managing your weight, getting active, stopping smoking, and eating healthier, you can stop pre-diabetes before it leads to type 2 diabetes. It's easy to learn your risk. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Life doesn't come with a remote control. So you're on your own with the wasps. You have the power to take control of pre-diabetes. Visit doihaveprediabetes.org today. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners.